So I met Daniela Pierre Bravo last summer when she interviewed me for MSNBC. I had just published an opinion piece about burnout and coping with overwhelm at work and at home at the height of the pandemic. And I could tell this person interviewing me was more than just a TV anchor. Sure, she had the perfect hair and the perfect makeup, but I could tell that as I was fumbling around with my makeup and my laptop that was like falling off of the pile of books I had it stacked up on that Daniela was an empathetic person and a really deep person. And, you know, we have very, very, very different backgrounds and upbringings, but we both have this similar problem, if you will, of overworking and overcompensating in order to prove our worth. And I've been so thrilled to get to know her over time. And I'm just really happy to bring her story to the podcast. It's such an important one. Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com slash newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Daniela Pierre Bravo went from being an undocumented immigrant to being unstoppable, but she's more than the sum total of her successes. She is a soulful, deep person and I'm thrilled she's here today. Daniela is the oldest of five in a family of Chilean immigrants, and she put herself through college cleaning houses, waiting tables, and selling Mary Kay cosmetics. Through a lot of hustle and sweat, and with the lessons learned that we'll talk about today, Daniela is now a producer for MSNBC's Morning Joe and the author of two best-selling books, her first one alongside Mika Brzezinski about knowing your value and earning it and growing your career. And the other book is called literally The Other, How to Own Your Power at Work as a Woman of Color, released in August this year. Her book is part memoir, part roadmap for women of color, not only to achieve their professional goals, but also to be seen, understood and supported at work. Today, we'll talk about the mental and physical health toll that Daniela experienced feeling unworthy and not belonging as a result of her undocumented status and how she has taken control of her story and sense of self at work and in her life. Daniela, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to be here. I I love this podcast, and I love the type of conversations that you have on here. So thank you so much for having me. I just listened to your TED Talk. As I told you before the show started, I've been bathing in your voice over the course of the week. Uh, I feel like you're my friend now. We are friends. We are. We are. In fact, you interviewed me last summer on MSNBC, and I didn't realize when you interviewed me what a powerhouse you are behind the petite container of your power that you are. You know, the story that you have of growing up as the oldest daughter in a family of immigrants is pretty interesting. I mean, you had a 
chaotic household. Your family and parents worked a lot. You were a real rule follower because the rules felt comfortable and safe. And then it wasn't until you were in high school that you learned you were undocumented. And I think a lot of us, particularly women and humans in general, feel at times of their lives senses of unworthiness. You know, the imposter syndrome is a commonly used phrase. But you actually had proof that you were in the eyes of many Americans, not even really a person. I mean, the media calls undocumented immigrants horrible, horrible things. What did that feel like to you? Can you describe sort of the emotional and physical feelings that came with not feeling like you belonged in the country that you were born in? Well, I've had a lot of time to think about it with the second book, because aside from being a career book, as you mentioned, it's it's a lot about understanding yourself and figuring out where you've lost parts of yourself in order to appease, belong, and create a sense of safety. If I were to really think about the emotions that I wanted to, you know, with the book come across, it's the emotions that I felt during that time of what you just described, which was loneliness, shame, and this inner constriction of wanting to do more, knowing you're capable, right? I think a lot of us who have been the first of our families for many, you've got to have confidence. I think that's a given, but it's the internalizing of who you are, right? And the messages of what people say about you that is in conflict with this person that you know that you are. And I think for a long time, I had this inner fight, which created a lot of sense of dis-ease. And I think in this part of my life, I've been working really hard, <laughs> to create a sense of ease, which has been very counterintuitive. You talked about not having papers, not being documented as not just about a lack of status. It's a feeling. It's a feeling of shame and uncertainty. Can you talk about what that feels like in your body physically? I remember when I was a kid and it pops up at different times now, there was a constant churning your stomach, the flip-flop I was always tensed up. I didn't even know it, but my shoulders were always tensed. And then I have trouble breathing correctly now, 20 years later. And it was because for a long time, my upbringing, you know, I was just trying to go under the radar and I was un like in the shadows, which meant nobody knew about my situation. So I was in this space where I felt all the feelings of what it was like to be this nuisance, right? To be this person that didn't belong, to be this person that was on the receiving end of all of these comments people in my town would say openly and freely because they had no idea about me. And at the same time, trying to convince myself internally that those things didn't have a weight on who I was. And that was really hard when I was the only person saying that about myself because I didn't have the community of people that were also undocumented. I didn't have Latinos around me that were friends of mine. I didn't have support. And so what I realized, and you know, when I talk about in this book, that again, it's a career book, but it's much more than that. But when you are microaggressed towards, or when you are told something about yourself that is not true, but is based on the beliefs, the limited beliefs of others, and there's no one else like you, that loneliness will cause you not only to internalize those ideas about yourself, 
but it also makes you feel like you're the problem, like you're the one that needs to change. And I had to constantly fight that. And it was a very lonely journey. It sounds honestly exhausting. It sounds so physically tiring to have to be in that space where you're the only person sort of cheerleading yourself. And I mean, you were young when you were living in Ohio and no one knew you were undocumented and were saying things like, I think you said your boyfriend's mother asked you if you were an alien. I mean, is that right? Is that is that what she said? Yes. It was a dinner conversation and it was the first time meeting them. And I, I already felt the differences between them and me because- Aside from the undocumented status, like my parents like worked two and three jobs, like they were never home. There was just like five of us. We were just very chaotic. And like my parents didn't go to college here. And his family was like totally different. Ivy League educated. They were, you know, always there for the football and soccer games and basketball games and all that. So I already felt that sense of the other. And that for me was just like, you finally got caught as much as you tried to hide who you are you got caught. And, you know, at the end, like I try to play it off. I I just like, I went into this like out of body experience where I just like spit out like some sort of excuse of like, oh, our paperwork's in the works. But the fact that I just even had to explain it confirmed to me that I was going to be for the rest of my life, someone who had to confirm to others that they were right, confirm to them that they didn't need to feel a dis-ease by being in my presence. And that for me, I internalized that even in my subconscious, that I needed to follow rules and I needed to look at cues and I needed to follow those cues no matter how much parts of my personality and self I left behind. So long as I followed those things, those rules, those cues, I would find safety in the environment that I was in. But, you know, as I moved along in my life, in my career, it came up in nuanced ways, in the ways where I had lost value in myself, like the ways that I decided to dress up and like the ways that I constantly questioned everything, like even like the smallest details, like, right, because I wanted to find confirmation or validation from other people to make sure that it was in the right tone. And in some senses in your career, that's really valuable, right? When you come into the workplace in year one or two, you're going to stand out if you give others what they need. And you're going to stand out if you can read what other people want or expect of you. And those are all great qualities. But the problem is, is I took it to the extreme because of my lived experiences. And I never really let it shed off. I didn't realize that I was in this constant status quo of like going with the ebb and flow of being somebody that wasn't really me. And even in the way that I dress, in my demeanor, even my personality was just so hardened because I was just so focused on getting things right and not messing it up. It felt like every opportunity was fleeting because it was, because that was, you know, the experience that I had growing up. Aside from feeling all these feelings about myself internally, there were real barriers. Couldn't go to college. We didn't have money to go to college. Even if I did go to college, I wouldn't be able to graduate and find a job because I was undocumented. There was no path. There was no path. There was no guidebook. There was no mentors. Everybody at home was just trying to survive. And so in many ways, I was just like on my own, you know, life floating device, just trying to find my way to, you know, to the shore you know, like just trying to survive. 
So living in that constant state of kind of hypervigilance and overcompensation, I mean, it sounds exhausting. I mean, I think you're right that, you know, when you're new at a workplace, you have to kind of read the room and understand the culture of the place and follow the rules, certainly at the beginning, right? But it sounds like you kind of surrendered your identity out of necessity in many ways and at the expense of your sense of your own self, yeah, I mean, I had a strong sense of who I was and what I wanted and my worth, but all of the things that were part of making me special and making me stand out further along, like that ease and play and joy, those were not there. So give me some examples of things that, like, do you remember specific moments when you had to kind of subjugate your personality or your kind of special attributes that would have actually enhanced the workplace and you had to kind of squelch them? This is a small example, but like hoops. I felt weird wearing hoops because I'm proud to be Latina, but I didn't want to look too Latina because I, I didn't want people to have any expectations about like who I was without me showing them who I was, right? And so I think it was just this conditioning of learning that people have a lot of biases and me wanting to be that person that, you know, didn't give them any sort of clues or anything to hold on to to make them think of me in any boxes. So for a long time, it's so silly. I didn't wear hoops because I didn't want the stereotypes of being too Latina, right? Because we know when we're in marginalized communities or minor communities, there's always some sort of stereotype, right? The angry black woman, the hysterical Latina, she's too aggressive. She's too, you know, when you can be like intense in a way where you're direct and you know what you want, people see that as hysterical. Or when you stand up for yourself, she was angry. She was so angry, right? And it's because, you know, this is a culture difference, but I didn't want anybody to have any, you know, ideas of stereotypes about me. And so for a long time, I didn't wear hoops. And then on a smaller scale, that ease at work is so important because that ease allows you to connect with people where that shell isn't down and you can exchange ideas and feel like what you have to say is important enough or that is interesting enough. And for a long time, I felt like I knew all these things about me, but I was worried on what other people would think. And so after I went from a coordinating producer, which was all like menial work, the coffees, the scripts and all of that, I would get to this point where I was in an editorial position. I had just gotten into like this position of like power in, in some ways, right? You're deciding the show the next day. You're helping book guests for the show. And I remember I would have opportunities with colleagues and talent to talk to them and like a human and just like be a person and, and, and engage in easeful conversation. And I would tense up and I would offer them coffee instead. Can I, can I go get you a coffee? And then I would like run away. And I'm like, why am I doing that? It wasn't about the workplace, but it was a conditioning that I had already brought up about of this idea of not saying the wrong thing or, you know, being super vigilant about what you say and how you come off to an extreme where I didn't allow myself to engage in this easefulness of, of the situation because I didn't have that ease. I didn't know how to cultivate it. It's such a good example of the reflexive behaviors we have and how thought patterns become paved like concrete highways in our brains. You know, we have these thoughts that we know aren't necessarily rooted in reality. You knew your value. You knew your worth. You knew that what other people thought of you didn't reflect who you were. But somehow the thoughts became internalized and then the thought became the behavior. It's sort of like someone thinks I 
see someone on social media having a party I'm not invited to, therefore I'm not a bad person. And then that kind of feeds their self-esteem, even if they know better. What's interesting to me about you know human behavior and then you in particular is how you broke that thought and then behavior reflexive pattern of thinking that you're not worthy and then doing the thing that kind of perpetuated the cycle, like just offering someone coffee when you could have this kind of more in-depth, interesting conversation with them. How did you break that cycle? I think it was repetition of putting myself in situations that I was not totally ready for or comfortable for, but doing it anyways. And I had a great ally, right? Our friend, Mika Brzezinski, in the workplace, becoming and feeling more valuable came from, first of all, giving her the pitch of me working with her outside of Morning Joe with Know Your Value. And then the book, right? So that was a a real throw you in the fire moment. That really was an amazing experience. I had never written a book before. I was like 25 years old. Really had to learn on the spot. But I had to, whether I liked it or not, really figure out the value of my story and the importance of it, the meaning of it, the intention of it, and the greater purpose of it. And writing that book, just going through the motions of writing my story and the lessons that came about in that first book, that was my own aha moment because I didn't have any other choice but just to sit with that content for two years and go through it over and over. I'm a person that's really in their head all the time. I'm like constantly thinking, constantly problem solving, which is exhausting in itself. But that exercise of writing that book And this was the thing, not just writing the book and understanding parts of myself and the value of my story and the importance of what I brought and how it was different than what other people brought to the table. Because I didn't think my story was very special or extraordinary, and I still don't. I think it's just a vehicle to connect with the same experiences that other hardworking young people go through. And that's what it was. And that's the aha moment when I was actually doing talks and seeing the readers of the book who were mirroring their own experience through my own and my writing. And that's when I realized it's not about you. It's not personal. And the way that you show up in these spaces of power is beyond you and your influence in that space and your career growth. It's your ability to bring in and amplify and make seen and heard the stories of the people that are marginalized in this country, of minorities, of immigrants, of women, of children of immigrants, of women of color. And that is what I honed in on in my own career now as a reporter for Morning Joe. I love doing those stories and I know that I I have the power to bring stories that haven't been told to this space, but it's incumbent on me to cultivate that ease and that sense of bringing myself to work, my full self to work and my knowing that, you know, my value that I know other people need to know it so that I can better do my job. And if if I better do my job, I'm bringing all these other voices with me. In 2022, We pay a lot of lip service to the concept of diversity, equity, inclusion, and we should. We also need to understand that equity is part of that DEI sentence, right? It's not just about giving people a seat at the table. It's about giving people a voice, opportunities, and a path to success. 
But I think what you're saying, if if I'm correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like your story is particularly important insofar as you are providing the safe place and the template in a way for other women who don't have mentors or a guide to show up as themselves at work. And to make people feel less lonely. Yeah. When you don't feel lonely and you feel like you're part of a group that goes through the same experiences, it does create a sense of safety within yourself and you stop blaming yourself. And this new book, I really hope, aside from all the great tips on how to you know, do better at work and all that, it's about finding that power that you've given away through appeasing and seeing yourself through the eyes of somebody else so that you can finally see yourself through your own eyes and show other people that part of you that you have been fragmenting in order to belong. But to go back with what you said with the DEI, it's diversity, inclusion, and equity. So I think we're far beyond just getting people a seat at the table, right? I think there's so much emphasis on companies to get more women of color to the seat, more marginalized communities to a seat at the table. Let them speak at the table. Let them use their power at the table. Speak about them in rooms that they don't have access to yet. Give them opportunities. There's so many young people who have so much emphasis on finding the right mentor. Mentors can only do so much. They can only advise you. We need sponsors. We need people that are going to give opportunities. We need people that are going to not just walk the walk, but put themselves out there on the line and voice the women and the marginalized communities that are not in the room. I have been lucky that I've had somebody to do that. Mika has been that person, but I think she's a good example of what other people should do. There's so much like training, like, oh, what should we do to help women in marginalized community? Talk about them when they're not in the room. Give them opportunities. It's not that hard. Let them use their seat at the table. I think we also need to be more curious about people's stories. I think we need to understand people's backgrounds and embrace what we don't know as white people. And as you said, talk about them and give people of color, marginalized people, people who are immigrants, opportunities and the microphone. Yeah. And I think that sometimes that means white people need to stay quiet sometimes and let people of color speak their own lived experiences. Because I think even with all of this racial injustice that's been happening these past couple of years, there's been so many white people trying to insert themselves to the conversation, trying to speak for them. And I think that we learned that in order for people to really be in their power and to really educate people who want to be educated is that they need the microphone. I think you're so right. I'd love to actually explore that for a minute. You know, there's this tension, as you well know, in the white community of people who consider themselves allies wanting to do everything they can, but not knowing necessarily how to. And sometimes what we do well is talk and talk the talk. But I think you're right, being quiet and giving space for other voices to sit at the microphone and speak is what we need to do. Yeah, I think I think we're overthinking it. You know, I think it's just like, stay quiet, give them the microphone, let's learn from them. Here's the thing, bias, conscious or unconscious, that's deep-rooted. It doesn't come up easily. You've got to really dig for it. And this has been going on generations, right? And so for you to think that you're going to 
dismantle your own conscious or conscious bias by trying to speak and be part of the conversation and make sense of it is futile. Like you need to let people speak about their own lived experiences that you consciously or unconsciously have been dismissing for generations through bias. I think this is a time to listen. And I think we've all learned that these last couple of years. Danielle, can you describe the feeling you talked about shedding layers of fear and shame in the moment where you watched on a little TV in a deli outside of the NBC studios in 2013, President Obama, it's giving me chills asking you this question, announcing his executive action on DACA. What did that feel like in your body? You know, I've written so many times about it. And every time I put myself or I hear somebody talk about that moment, I get the same type of feeling in my body where I feel like all my little cells are just like jumping uncontrollably. And it's just a sense of joy and euphoria because it really did change my life. It really did change who I could be and how I thought I could develop myself because Yes, it was a work permit. Yes, it meant that all of these things that I was doing in vain that nobody really understood, right? I was getting on this bus for 18 hours, going for an unpaid internship and moving to New York when I didn't know anybody and getting all these side hustles and walking down restaurant row with my resume and asking for the managers and asking them if they could pay me cash just so that I could buy pizza at night to survive, just so that I could get an unpaid internship, even if I couldn't use that internship. I felt like I needed to start building those moments of value. But nobody told me that. Nobody said, if you do this, then this will happen. The moment in that summer, I was actually working for Bad Boy. I was interning before I worked for NBC. And I didn't know that was going to happen. I had no idea. So it was like a shock. And I remember being in that deli. There was like 10 people in there, eight people in there. And I just wanted to hug everybody. And just, Did you see what just happened? Did you see what just happened? But it's so interesting. Like everybody went on with their lives. Like nobody else in that deli was affected as much as me. Like I wouldn't be here with you. Point blank. I would not be here with you if that moment didn't happen. And it just, it completely changed my life. Completely. And there's this sense of gratefulness, of happiness, of feeling like you could literally do anything in the world. And it was just an opportunity for kind of having equal ground. That's it. That's all it did. You can stay here and you can work. But that program, as valuable as it was in that moment, has also been the cause of constant anxiety because it's been a decade and the purpose of deferred action, that executive action from President Obama was only supposed to be temporary to give us safety from deportation, but it did not mean, and it still does not mean any sort of path to legalization, let alone citizenship. The idea was for Congress to act, to, to give a window of time for Congress to act. A decade later, that has not happened. And DACA in this moment is still at risk. There was a lawsuit that just happened. And all of us are still waiting to see what happens. 
And this didn't just happen this year. It's happened every year, every other year since the program was enacted. So while all of us are trying to develop ourselves and figuring out, do I buy a house? Do I make roots here? Can I have a family here? Do I stay at my job? Do I do this project? Every year, there's this constant uncertainty hanging over our heads. And some people may look at what I do and say, wow, she's doing all these things and things are working out for her. But while I'm doing all these things and I'm writing these books and I'm, you know, reporting on air and I'm contributing to all these things and speaking, there is a real anxiety and sense of uncertainty that is looming over me every single day that I have to manage. That's what's so interesting to me about human beings. I see a lot of patients who on the surface look like they've got it all figured out no matter who they are. But you know, behind the scenes of, of any of us lies complexities, our emotional health, and our stories live in our bodies. How do you, Daniela, manage the day-to-day anxiety and that sort of undercurrent of uncertainty in terms of your kind of health habits? And how do you care for your mental health specifically? I don't know if it's that healthy or you're going to have to tell me. Um, <laughs> there is a little bit of sense of denial of the reality of how this could program be taken away from us at any moment. Because if I were to base myself in reality, I would base myself in fear. And I've chosen to base myself in possibility. And that for me, I need to create a sense of denial in order to do that. I think that some of that is just healthy compartmentalization. You know, some of that is acceptance that you cannot control our federal government and the DACA program. So, you know, as I talk to patients, you know, there's there's denial where you're completely ignoring a reality that really you need to kind of lean into because you have some agency over it. But then there's healthy compartmentalization where you have decided, it sounds like, to put it in a box so that you can then bathe yourself and all the the things that I can control. That's the ticket to health, actually, is knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them. And actually, that's why I wrote this book. The readers of my book are women of color who have suffered real repercussions through their identity. And whether it be through microaggressions or biases that discriminate us in the job hiring process or in the job itself, I wanted this book to be about the part that you can control. Because the book is called The Other. And although I am in this country, I am a woman of color, right? Technically, I'm a woman of color. I'm a white Latina, right? I can pass as white. I don't suffer the same injustices as my Afro-Latina sisters or brown women, right? I can get away with it to some extent. I haven't felt that prejudice that they've, they've felt in some ways. My otherness is different. It's through my undocumented status. I mean, I have, you know, being the only Latina in a lot of spaces, I've, I've felt what it's like, but it's a different layer of the otherness. At the end of the day, we all suffer through things that we cannot control, whether it's people, whether it's institutions, whether it's systems. And in this book, instead of writing all the things that are wrong with the world and writing everything about how things need to change, which they do, and there are great books that examine that with a lot of nuance, my book is that part that you can control because that is the small window that I have been able to create my own narrative through. And it's that part 
of being really intentional and proud and conscious and aware of that part that you can control. But in order to control that, you have to really understand who you are and the value that you bring as a human. And as you saw in the book, that's the first few chapters of the book, which some people might read this and say, well, I thought this was a career book. And all the career advice sort of comes at the end. But the first few chapters is really honing in on who you are, who you've been told you are, and what lies you've believed through this injustice that we face every day as women of color. And I, I think I'm proud of, of that. So I, I know that it's a different book. It's not your typical career book. I don't know if you got that sense as well. What I love about the book, and I have the copy at home, I should have brought it in to, to display. But what I love about the book is that it's not just a how-to at work book. Because at the end of the day, we bring our whole selves, we bring our lived experiences, we bring our stories to the workplace. And so ground zero is understanding who you are, what your values are, and leaning into the parts of your life and career path that you have some control over. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, the message for women of color is not the same. The women the women of color in this book have been told that they cannot bring their full selves to work. There's so many of them who start out shedding parts of who they are, fragmenting parts of their beautiful lived experiences, cultures, and sense of self because they've been told it's bad and they've internalized it that way. But this book is almost going backwards and saying, no, those are lies that you've been told. This is the way that you do bring yourself back to you and how you can actually be an advantage in the spaces that you have power in and in your career by bringing those things with you. That is something that I really wanted to bring about in the book. And it's a part that we really can control. Danielle, if you could tell me a little bit more about how you manage this sort of day-to-day uncertainty in your life, like your habits and sort of caring for your mental health. I mean, do you exercise? Do you meditate? Do you do therapy? All of the above. I'm a work in progress. I'm going to get off this call, this video, and I'm going to meditate after this because I'm supposed to be meditating in the mornings for like 10 minutes and I, I get distracted and I don't do it. But that I love doing hot yoga. I need movement. I've realized that the day is that I don't do movement. I just completely not the same mentally. I have to move, whether it's walking my dog. And I have these routines. Like I love getting up in the morning when I'm not on set for Morning Joe and going to get a cup of coffee. Like I live in Brooklyn. So there's so many cute coffee shops coming up every other month. And I, first of all, I love supporting local businesses, but that just routine of getting up and getting the coffee and walking with the coffee by the water and walking my dog. I know like the whole latte conversation, like they're so expensive. I have put that in my mental health bucket. So I do not feel guilty about it at all. (laughs) And yeah, it's just creating routine and just cultivating small parts of the day where you can just give yourself back to yourself and ground yourself and just create, again, a sense of ease. I think beyond just doing all these things that I need to do for my mental health, it's like, What is the intention of the feeling that I want to create through these routines? And for me, it's ease. So every time I'm doing a meditation or burning Palo Santo or walking my dog or getting coffee or doing yoga, it's like I like think about the word ease. I want to create ease. And that helps me develop that because it's very counterintuitive, very counterintuitive. 
I want to center that word when I title this episode because, you know, it's not a coincidence that dis-ease is disease, right? So when you don't have a sense of ease and when everything is work, like we center our lives on the workplace and then being who you are itself feels like work, that creates disease. It creates adrenaline and cortisol surges in our body. It creates dysregulated hormones. It creates cardiovascular disease. I mean, there's no shortage of data on the consequence of trauma and repeated trauma on our bodies. So I think it's really important to tell women and explain to women and model to women as you do that working hard is great, but ease is also a goal. Finding ease, finding joy, giving yourself some compassion, letting yourself buy that expensive latte and putting it in the mental health bucket. That is all part of being healthy is finding ease, comfort, and joy. Yeah. I mean, I've been really thinking about this these past couple of years because my first book with Nico is Earn It. When you're earning it, you don't really think about how it makes you feel or that sense of ease, which I really focus on in this book. But I wrote this piece in Cosmopolitan during the pandemic, which I, you know, a lot of people reached out to me and, and told me that they felt the same way. It's being a doc recipient, being an immigrant, being this go-getting yes girl, I found a lot of value in my productivity. And my family had jobs where they weren't at a cubicle. They weren't like expressing their ideas and, you know, brainstorming. No, they were working hard labor jobs. My mom was working, you know, she would have three jobs and then she would go to her waitressing job and she'd have flaring arthritis and she would keep going, right? Productivity was the name of the game. Like that was the way to success. That was the way to put food on the table. So for me, for a long time, I equated my value and my worth on productivity because as a DACA recipient, what happens every year where the program is being attacked or, you know, it's in the courts. You see in the New York Times and the Washington Post and all these major publications, op-eds of like, but look at these kids. They belong. They're Pulitzer Prize winning writers and they're changing the world. They belong. They deserve it. And so it's this constant sense of like, we have to prove how worthy we are. We have to remind people that we, we do belong and we do deserve a chance. And it's exhausting, right? It's just like, conditioning of knowing that your productivity is part of your innate worth. And I think that during the pandemic, when everything slowed down, you're like, well, what is my worth? If I'm not churning out things at the office or if I'm not churning things out in the studio, like what, what's my worth? And I think it's so much more than that. Now I've realized if you cultivate that sense of ease, you can bring who you are to the table. And when you bring who you are to the table, you're not just like churning out productivity. You're bringing soft skills that have value in itself. And that I think for me is like my second chapter is knowing that all of these soft skills that I bring are just as equally, if not more valuable than, you know, all of the productivity that I did at the beginning of my career. I love it, Daniela. And I love how you talk about ease because I, I just to echo what you said, I think so many women you know, we, we are caregivers. We care for our families. We care for our communities. We care for, you know, our workplace product, but we need to care for ourselves. And having moments of ease doesn't have to be expensive or fancy or formal. It can be, as you just said, a latte 
inhaling the beautiful fall autumn air and just appreciating time and space. That's that is healthy too, as much as the product at work itself. Mm-hmm. Totally. Daniela, I really, there's so many things I love about you. I mean, it's very easy to look at you on the TED stage and on Morning Joe and think, wow, this woman has achieved so much. She has come so far. It's also refreshing to hear you talk about in such an honest, authentic way of the ongoing challenges and hardships you have. You're not sugarcoating this path and journey. In fact, you're showing people that it's okay to be vulnerable and to struggle and to share that with other people. That is your superpower in my mind. Not you and that pencil skirt on the TED stage, which by the way, looked awesome. It's just, it's you being you. And that's incredible. I think that's how we bring real value to this world is for me, you know, I have this chapter in the book about exploring your why, especially for immigrants and women of color. It's not just like what we want to do. It's what our families want to do. It's like the sacrifices of our families need to be worth it. And that creates a lot of pressure in how we we decide on what we do for the rest of our lives. But I think for me, my why is service. It's in beings of service of others. And I do that through storytelling. So for me, it doesn't matter if I'm writing a book, if I'm, you know, doing pieces on TV or, or writing things on digital. It's about letting other people feel heard and seen and not lonely and using my vulnerability as a tool because it was really hard to write this book. Like sometimes I was like going through chapters and I'm like, do I really want to include that part? And I did because I realized that if it doesn't make you me uncomfortable and if it doesn't make me squirm, then it's not impactful. And then when I am uncomfortable as I'm reading, I'm like, okay, this is going to create an impact. And it oftentimes does. And I realized that my why is service. And it honestly, it has liberated me a little bit because it's not personal and it's not just about me. It's about everyone else that gets to see themselves through my own journey and the work that I do as a storyteller. Daniela, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today and for talking to me and for teaching me about your true self. And the next time you're in DC, call me. I'm going to buy you a latte. And I insist that you're going to wear those hoop earrings. (laughs) Okay, deal. And thank you so much, Danielle, for joining me today. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.